and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Gitin, daf Memchet, page 48. So, halfway through, or maybe a little less through, I'm a bet, we begin the new parak. Yardena, I know you're going to take care of that. I'm going to just, I wanted to talk about um, this, there's a, the ongoing machloket between Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish that, that we talked about already yesterday, or didn't even talk about so much yesterday, it's long, right, um, has is is kind of in addition to the continuation of demonstrating where they disagree, the Gemara on Ahmed Aleph here introduces another machloket, says that, that their machloket, Rabbi Yochanan Reish Lakish, is parallel to another dispute. And I think that the other dispute becomes just interesting in its own right. It's talking about specifically um, the case where you have a person who purchases a field from his father during the time when there was a yovel. They know all of these mitzvot, these agricultural mitzvot, they all have tons of details that are applied to them, right? So it's during the time of the yovel, the yovel, everything would go free, right? Like any kind of any kind of loan, right? These, you know, we had things like Prusbol, whatever were put in place, not only for Shemitah, but also for Yovel, right? The, the, the question of when a Prusbol doesn't work is an interesting one, which we're not going to get into here either, right? The idea that something that is, when something is, when you hit the Yovel year, right? The 50th year in your seven cycles of Shemitahs, then you come to the 50th year and it's a Yovel year, and now what's going to happen? So the case here is specifically um, somebody buys his field from his father and sanctifies it. And then the father dies. So how then, what happens, right? Is that considered the like the ancestral field? Is this considered that it's going to be an inheritance? Or will the son's ownership, like does it, does the dedication of it revert to the sun or does it stay hectic? So the man goes on him or really is bringing this breita. So there's the verses in Vayikra, Leviticus 27. It says, if he dedicates, he sanctifies the field to the, to the Lord, to God, right? Which he had bought which is not the field of his ancestral field, which is a key element, right? It's not considered to be his inheritance from within the Nachala, within the, how do we say this? The portion, the apportionment to the tribes, let's say, that happens in there. So then what happens is that this field would be excluded Right, meaning the son is entitled to inherit it, in to inherit it after he'd already consecrated it, but then it's going to be excluded if it's fit to be the ancestral field. Meaning the son's already purchased it, and still it's going to be excluded, and that's the position of Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Shimon. So I feel like we're quite far afield from no pun intended from the things that we were talking about in terms of non-Jewish ownership. But we're very, you know, deep in the question of these agricultural mitzvot and and what does it mean to be a Jewish people in the land? So the break there continues, and now we've got Rabbi Meir's opinion. Rabbi Meir Omer, minayin lelokeach sadem yaviv, meit aviv va'achar kach ektisha, minayin shetehelaf anav kesedechulza. So Rabbi Meir says, you know, how do we know? Where do we learn that if you purchase your field, a field from one one who purchases a field from his father? At the time when they were still involved in the Yovel, 
and then the father dies, and then the son consecrates it, right? How do we know that that should be considered like an achuzah, the ancestral field, and that it would not revert back to the son on the yovel? It's the same verse, right? That same verse from Vayikra. A field that is, you know, that is under transaction, that is not the field of the Achuzah, it is not the ancestral field. So that then will exclude the field that is the actual ancestral field. Now, here's where it gets maybe a little more interesting. And and for those of you who would like to connect it back to the Machlok of Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish, this is where you know you'll be able to do so. Where Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Shimon say that if the case is that the field was consecrated, um, the field was in he inherited it before he consecrated it. It's not considered an uh, ancestral field. What do they say? If the father died and then he consecrated it, he wouldn't. Like that's that to them is like an obvious case, right? He's consecrated after it's after he inherits it. After he inherits it, then it is considered the the ancestral field. But otherwise, he would say, "Well, you don't even need the verse to teach it that it's not going to be um, an achuza." My love behind kemiflagei. So the Gemara wants to know what is it then that they. What are they disagreeing about, or what are they not disagreeing about here? Rabbi Meir says that when you acquire an item for the produce, it's as if you also acquired the main item for itself. Meaning, if you want the rights to the produce in that field, and that's why you buy that field, but then you also get that field, right? That seems to be the case. But then, so the father, then, then if you're only wanting the produce, then once the father dies, then you're only inheriting, then you don't inherit anything when the father dies because you took ownership of the field at the time that you purchased it from the father. So it doesn't, it doesn't, there's nothing to change. You've already, the son already has it, right? And then, which is why if the father dies and then the son consecrates it afterwards, according to Rabbi Meir, not according to Rabbi Yehud and Rabbi Shimon, then you would need that verse to, to teach that it would indeed be treated like an ancestral field, like this achuzah, that the inheritance. Meaning, because he, he owns the field because of the purchase. And he owns the field because of the purchase and not because of the inheritance, but then he can sanctify it, right, in any case. Now, I want to note that I just kind of dived into the Gemara here and read the Praetor and kept going. I feel like if I were, I don't know, teaching a class about this kind of transaction and inheritance, we would start with the question of, um, of exactly this, right? Like, how does one, what happens when one purchases a field from a family member from whom one will inherit and then that person dies, and then you would inherit it, but you've already bought it. And that's kind of really the case, right? Except for the Gemara doesn't start there. The Gemara starts in with the Machloket. The Machloket continues. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Shimon, Savri, Kinyan, Peirot, love Kinyan, Guf, Dami. So Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon, don't, they, they disagree with Rabbi Meir to begin with. That if you buy the thing for the produce, then it's not that you would get the main thing to begin with. So that when you buy the field, but you're buying it for the fruits, Right then, 
it's not that you're buying the field even after the father has died. So exactly the opposite of Rabbi Meir. He says, well, now the father died. He consecrates the field after the father dies. He doesn't need a verse to teach him that it's in fact an, an achuza, an ancestral field, because it's clear that he owns it because it was in his, his inheritance, because he never would have acquired that field simply because of purchasing it for the fruits, I mean, the, the, the use of it for the fruits. It's a different kind of scenario as far as Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Shimon are concerned because they don't think that the ownership of the field would have come along with the Kinyan Peirot, with the purchase of the fruits. Um, okay. And again, I would say that both of these cases are really hinging on a very technical detail of, do you need a verse to teach this question of inheritance or not? The Gemara kind of categorically steps aside from all of this. Kenyan Peroki, Kenyan Goof Dami. The Gemara says, Rev Nachman Bar Yitzchak says, No, one second. Rebut and Reb Shimon do think that when you acquire the field and the Peirot, you it's like you got the same thing. You got the field when you got the fruits. Don't think that they think otherwise. Don't think that they disagree with Rebbe Meir on this point. And in fact, Right, Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Shimon, they use a different element of the verse, and they vidarush, and they they provide an explanation of it. They take that same verse from Vayikra. They say, What does it mean from the field of his uh, of his ancestral field, from his ancestral field? If you're saying that the field is not fit to be the ancestral field to begin with, meaning he would never have inherited it in the future, then that would exclude that kind of field. If it's kind of field that the son would be entitled to inherit after he'd already gone ahead and consecrated it, now it's excluded, but it would have been fit to be the ancestral field. It, it doesn't take that on because the son already purchased it. So I... I feel like this needs perhaps more attention than we're really able to give it right now. But I feel like this parallel, this dispute about the the inheritance of the field, right, lines up where Reish Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan were, again, discussing. They discussed the nature. And if we had read it all through together, perhaps that also would provide the backdrop to make this a perhaps a smoother conversation. But the idea that um, when you go down to the field, right, and do you want... What is your intent when you come to, pr- to purchase it? Or do you want the produce? Do you want the field? Do you want the future of it? Do you want to dedicate it? And the machlokit that applies for them is then, as I said, parallel to this question of inheritance. It's not the same case, but it's a, it's a parallel one. Um, okay. I actually think I'm going to pause or stop here. Um, Yardana, do you want to take over? I think I, like I... I like the idea that we could finish reading the Gemara inside on this parak, but I'm I think we're not going to do it. So I, I I think it's just interesting to see how all these laws of inheritance work. Um, there's not so much practical halacha to this today, although and we talked about this in one of our seums that you know in Israel some of the issues of inheritance with like an oldest getting more property than the younger siblings that applies today. But this is an area of law that we don't really see practically. Um, but I also thought it was interesting just to see the whole idea that, you know, 
Yeovil also wasn't kept and how that would impact selling of fields, inheritance of fields, like these things actually did, you know, it's a great example of where halakha involves not just the ritual pieces of our lives that define us in being Jewish, but even define sort of just every, every human sort of experience, right? Issues of death, selling property, things like that. And there's a halakhic way to handle those things. Right, right. And the Gemara takes that also as a given, right? Some of these details are not in play even today, right? Where it keeps saying, when they were dealing with the Yovel, we we symbolically represent Yovel nowadays, but, but not not in this way. And I think that there are a lot of, I don't know what, civil laws, right? That kind of supersede whatever the halacha might have been in in a modern Israeli state as well, right? Like it gets very complicated. You want to say what's from Torah and what's from, I don't know, the Ottoman Empire, right? Like the the how it plays out in modern Israel is a bit different. Um, but I think it's really a very well taken point, Yordana, that that the the halacha is going to apply to everything. Okay, uh, so with that, we're going to finish our parak and we're going to move on to the next parak. Um, and this parak is going to start with so hadran alai chasholach, and we're going to start now with a new parak hanizakin shamin lahem biidit. So the court basically appraises land of superior quality, right? That's what idit is uh, for for payment to uh, you know injured parties. Ubalcho benonit ukedubat ishid biz burit. Right. And a creditor, though, collects debt from a debtor's intermediate, like Benoni, intermediate quality land. And the payment of a woman's marriage contract is collected from the husband's inferior quality land. Rabbi Meir says, no, even the woman's uh, should be taken from intermediate land. So when we talk about payment of a debt or some type of other thing that is owed, it's not collected from lien property that was sold to a third party. When the debtor still has unsold property, even if this unsold property is 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 ziburit, is inferior quality. So in other words, the creditor cannot collect his debt from lien property from the that the debtor sold to somebody else, which may be better property as long as the debtor is still in possession of some property, even if it's inferior property, and it's not necessarily what the creditor would have wanted. Right? A father, if someone is owed money and the children inherited the debtor's property, the father's debt can be collected from the property of those orphans only from the inferior quality land. The court does not... Uh, I guess appropriate, right? Can't find lean property that has been sold to a third party for consumption of produce uh, or for any enhanced value of land. So what this is talking about is if someone basically took a field and sold it and the buyer worked the land and made the land better and grew produce on it. And then the initial owner, right? From who the field had had been um, stolen, okay? Let's say he... Take he takes the land back and the produce from the buy from the buyer, and all he does is pay the buyer back for the improvements that he made. The buyer can go to the seller. In other words, sorry, the whole case is that the seller didn't really own the land. Okay, so someone buys the land from a from a seller who shouldn't 
who didn't really own the land. The buyer makes some improvements on the land. The original, the actual owner of the land, who the seller had sold, stolen it from, comes back. He gets the land back and the produce from the buyer. And all he does is pay back the buyer for the improvements he made on the land. The buyer can go back to the seller and basically collect his losses. Okay, He can get back the purchase cost of the field. Um, even if the robbers sold it to somebody else, okay? But the value of the produce and the enhancements he made to the, the field, right, they can only be collected from robbers' unsold property, okay? And also, right, when we talk about providing sustenance for a man's wife and daughters, that also cannot be collected from lean property, right? So one of the things that could say in the Ketubah is, is that once the husband dies, his widow and his daughters are still entitled to Mizonot. We, we've talked about that in Masachi Ketubot. They're entire, entitled to be supported, but this cannot be collected from lean property that was sold to another person, only from his unsold property that's inherited by his heirs. And all of these things, everything that's listed in this Mishnah was done for Tikkun Olam. And then finally, the Mishnah concludes by saying, and it also was said that if someone finds a lost item and returns it to the rightful owner, they don't have to take an oath that they didn't keep any of it for himself. And again, this also was done because of tikkun olam. So we'll just do a little bit of the Gemara here, but tomorrow we'll get much more into it. The Gemara starts off by asking me, tikkun olam, right? When the Mishnah says that it's tikkun olam, is it referring to all of the cases that are listed here, Right. But the first part of the Mishnah, which talks about compensation for damage, is taken from, uh, you know, better from the best land, right? So we're so we're saying, is that really tikkun olam de'oraitahi? That actually is a de'oraita, right? That's a law in the Torah, and we get this from Shmot chapter twenty-two, verse four. That somebody has to pay the best of his fields and the best best of his vineyard when he has to pay damages. So Amar Abaye, so Abaye says, This statement was only needed according to Rabbi Shmal. Right? Because Rabbi Shmal said the Torah law is that we appraise the property of the injured property. In other words, the injured party can collect payment only from property that's an equal value to the best that he has, okay? So let's say the one who caused the damage has better property. He only had to, from the Doraisa level, he only has to pay, according to Rabbi Shmuel, property that's equal to what the injured party has. So what the mission is teaching us is, is that for Tikkun Olam, we actually appraise the property of the one who caused the damage. And then Gemara is going to go on to say, where do we find the statement of Rabbi Shmuel? They quote a Brisa and explore a little bit more the statement of Rabbi Yishmael. But I think what we're going to see is a discussion, you know, why did all of these different enactments have to happen? This all has to do with either payments of loans, payments of damages, how do you get that money? What property does that money come from? Um, and sort of, you know, making, acknowledging that different properties will have different values and, you know, what, what in what circumstances can you use lesser value properties to make those payments. I feel like some of this came up maybe in Ketubo, right? I think that's where it was, um, you know, in a parallel case, whatever. I think that it gets really complicated, and we'll see this, right, 
that what happens, you're supposed to pay ED, right? You're supposed to pay for the best. But what happens when one person's best is like worse than the other person's worst, right? Like real estate values, including agricultural land values, right? Often that's what the kind of land that we're talking about here. It's just not on a par. And how to make the payment be, you know, to make that kind of assessment and to get it to pay back in a, in the best kind of way, that's also like legitimate for all parties concerned. I think it's really challenging. I think it's probably more challenging than I realized when I first learned this, which was not today. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying about that. I mean, again, these are like all laws that I honestly didn't know much about. And it's interesting to read and learn about. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.